0: And when most of us think about the book of Revelation, our minds picture horsemen, trumpets, bowls, bringing judgment and destruction. and Many of these sort of things are in some ways terrifying, but that's what we imagine, that's what we think about in the book of Revelation. Thus far, in our study, we have not really seen any of those things, but all of that changes today. Today we move into the aspects of Revelation that we think about when we think about the book of Revelation. So open your Bible to Revelation 6, page 952 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Revelation 6 and 1. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and the one who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that people would kill one another. And a large sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and behold a black horse and the one who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and behold an ashen horse and the one who sat on it had the name death and Hades followed with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and plague and by the wild animals of the earth. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained, And they cried with a loud voice, how long, O God? Howly and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them. And they were told that they were to rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters, who were to be killed even as they had been, was completed also. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the eminent people and the commanders and the wealthy, and the strong and every slave and every free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion. Father, what we have just read is a powerful, and if we're being honest, a terrifying image of what is to come. And Lord, I pray today for us to be able to receive what you want us to receive from this. Father, help us, on the one hand, to be aware this is what's coming. And it is every bit as bad as your word makes it out to be. And as we understand this, let it cause us to live with a holy urgency, an eternal urgency. About life. At the same time Lord. As disciples of Jesus. We ought not be afraid of this day. Revelation ends. With John saying even so come Lord Jesus. Our hearts as disciples of Jesus ought to long for this day. We long for our Savior's return. We long for. For this world to be made new. We long to see the fullness and the completion of the redemption which began on Calvary. So help us to live within that tension. Longing for your return. But reverent, respectful, urgent in our lives. Let this passage in your spirit examine us. To see how we live, to see what's going on in our hearts, to see if we are indeed fully devoted disciples of Jesus. And if we are, let this passage in your spirit strengthen us and encourage us in this. And if we're not, let your word and your spirit convict us. Help us to see we're lukewarm. Help us to see we're not even genuinely saved. Help us to see we're like the people of Sardis who are living on past glory. And let us turn back to you and rekindle our zeal, rekindle our passion, or or turn to you for the first time and be saved through faith in Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit today and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. I don't want to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Have your way. We ask in Jesus name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now I don't know about you, but when I read Revelation 6, I think, whew, that is intense. But that's kind of the point. It's supposed to be intense. Revelation 6 is the beginning. Of God's righteous judgment being poured out on those who have rebelled against him and rejected the salvation Jesus died to provide. The revelation or the the scroll Jesus took in Revelation five is about to be opened, and all of heaven will be unleashed upon the rebellious earth. The seals will be broken, the tribulation will begin. But Revelation six isn't the begin isn't the end, it is just the beginning of the end. But before we dive deep into Revelation 6 today, I, I do have a couple of questions. First question. How many seals does it say there were on this scroll in Revelation 5 and 1? Well, there's seven. So at the end of Revelation 6, how many seals had been broken? Six. So where did the other seal go? Where? What happened to the seventh seal? Well... We skip a chapter. Chapter seven is an interlude. And then if you get to chapter eight, look at chapter eight and verse one. When the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The opening of the seventh seal is interrupted by this vision in Revelation chapter seven. But this interruption isn't a one-time event. This is sort of the way revelation unfolds from here on out. Right, let me show you what I mean. Look at Revelation 8:2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Right? So, there were seven seals and the seventh seal was opened. Now there's seven angels given seven trumpets to blow to bring judgment upon the earth. Revelation 8 goes on with them blowing the trumpets, releasing the judgments on the earth, and it goes on. Uh, until we get to Revelation 9 and 13. Look at Revelation 9:13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, "Release the four angels who are bound in the great river Euphrates." And and the rest of the chapter goes on to explain what happens when the sixth trumpet is blown, but There's no mention of the seventh trumpet until we get to Revelation 11 and verse 15. Look there. Revelation 11 and 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And there the seventh trumpet is blown. Now, personally... For many years, I found all of this very confusing. What what is going on with all of this stuff in between the the seals being broken? It it hindered my ability to be able to understand the book of Revelation as how it flowed and what was going on. And, And one of the things I know is as a teacher or as a preacher, I can't accurately explain to others what I don't understand myself. Right? I mean, I don't understand algebra. So no matter how good my notes were, I could not teach anyone algebra. I could recite the right words. But if they had any questions or if anything went off schedule at all, I would be in a world of hurt because I don't understand algebra. So I could take notes from somebody else about the book of Revelation and and read them. But if I don't understand what's going on, then I'm really not teaching. I'm really not preaching and able to help anyone Along the way. So, so what I did is I I took some time a few years ago and I spent a day or two just studying, trying to study the whole book of Revelation. Not an individual chapter, but the book as a whole. I I wanted to understand the, the flow of how things went. Because there are seals and there are trumpets and there are bowls of judgment, but I didn't understand how it went from one to the next to the next and I needed to understand that. And as I studied, what I realized is the book of Revelation isn't written in chronological order, right? The events of Revelation don't necessarily take place in the order in which we read them in the book. The events and the visions of Revelation often overlap in time. And often what we see are the same revelation, but given from different perspectives. Now, I believe John writes them as the revelations are given to him. But they're not necessarily written in the way we would give a chronological order. But there is an order to the visions and to the events of the revelation. The the breaking of the seals and the breaking of the seventh seal, it leads to the the seven trumpets. And then the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet is blown and it leads to the, the seven bowls which are released upon the earth. Let me explain what I mean. So again, go back to Revelation 8. Did I say you needed your sword drill Bibles today? You do. Revelation 8, verse 1. The Lamb broke the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might... Add it to the prayers of the saints in the golden altar, which was before the throne. The smoke of the incense ascended from the angel's hand with the prayers of the saints before God. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire off the altar, hurled it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder and sounds of flashes, sounds and flashes of lightning and earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And in the set, chapter seven, the first angel sounds. Okay, now jump to Revelation 11 and 15. Revelation 11 and 15 we see. The seventh angel sounds, the voice of heaven, which I've already read. And the 24 elders in verse 16 who sat on the thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was. Because you have taken your great power and have begun your begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints who fear your name, and the small and great, destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in the the heaven, was opened. And the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and earthquake and a great hailstorm. So we have the seven seals and the seventh seal is released and it releases the seven trumpets. Here we have the sixth seal. I'm sorry, we have the seventh trumpet blown. And the seventh trumpet is then going to lead to the seven bowls of judgment. So turn to Revelation 15. Verse 5. We have all this time that's passed in in our time in reading. Then we get to chapter 15 and verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen And bright and their chests wrapped in golden sashes and one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels the seven goals The seven golden bowls full of the wrath of god who lives forever and ever And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of god and his power And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished Now this is where the seven bowls of god's wrath make their first appearance and it's flows out of the seven trumpets now you think this doesn't i don't immediately see how the seventh trumpet led to the seven bowls and the part of the reason is it's been just a really long time i mean it's been several chapters a lot has gone on from revelation 11 till we get to revelation 15 and 5 but compare the wording from revelation 11 19 with the revelation 15 and 5 right so Revelation eleven nineteen, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared. Right? And there's the flashes and the lightnings. Then when it's come time for the, the bowls of judgment to be poured out, we see again the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. The seven plagues came out of the temple. The angel had the seven plagues came out of the temple. The text about the seventh trumpet ends with a vision of the the... The temple in heaven and the ark of God's covenant. The seven bowls picks back up with a vision of the temple. And the idea of testimony, the tabernacle of testimony, the ark of the covenant was also called the ark of the testimony. So the text about the bowls begins with a vision of the temple and it's connecting us back to the seventh trumpet being blown. So just as the seventh seal being broken... Releases the seven trumpet judgments. So the seventh trumpet being blown releases the seven bowl judgments upon the earth. Now from what I can tell, once the judgments begin with the first seal breaking, it is a, an unbroken consecutive line from one to the other. The seals are broken, the trumpets are blown, the bowls are poured out. And, and it just goes one right after the other. But we have all of these In between chapters. right? We have Revelation 7. Revelation 10 verses 1 through chapter 11 verse 14. Revelation 12, 1 through Revelation 15 and 8. Revelation 17 through chapter... Revelation 17, 1 through Revelation 19 and 10. What's going on with those? If if the trumpets and the seals and all of that is consecutive, what are these in between chapters? Well, the in-between chapters are the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, but from different perspectives. It is the same thing, we're just seeing it from a different perspective. When when we see Jesus break the seal, we're seeing it from, from God's perspective. Jesus is breaking the seal, but that does something on the earth. When the trumpets are blown, we're seeing it when it talks about it. we're seeing it from John's perspective of seeing it up there in heaven with God, but it does something on the Earth. And it's the same when the bowls, the bowls are poured out, and John sees it, and we read about it, but then it does something when it's poured out upon the earth. And so the in-between chapters are showing us the seals being broken, but maybe from an earthly perspective. It shows us the trumpets being blown, but what it does upon the earth. It shows the, the bowls being poured out, but it shows it being done from a different perspective. Let me give you an example. And here's where you noticed in your, in the bulletin today, there was a handout. This will come in handy now, right? If you turn to Revelation 16 and verse 17. Revelation 16 and 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as had not been since mankind began to be upon the earth, so great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities and the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered in the sight of God to give her the cup of the wine of His fierce wrath. And every island fled, and no mountains were found, and huge hellstones weighing about a talent each came down from heaven upon the people. And the people blasphemed God because the plague of hell and because the hellstone plague was extremely severe. This is the seventh bowl being poured out, but I want you to especially notice what it says in verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, but Babylon the great was remembered in the sight of God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. Now, what is Babylon the great? What does it mean to receive the fierceness of God's wrath? Well, chapter 17 and 18 explain this to us, but it does so from multiple perspectives. So if you have this handout, and if you open it up, it should have been set up, the the six seals first. If you open it up on the page that says, seven bowls of the wrath of God, and you look down at bowl seven. right? So there's the bowl, what we just read in those verses, what's happened? And now what happens in verse 17 and 18 is we're giving a that we're given that same picture of the bowl being poured out upon Babylon, but we're giving a different perspective, right? Chapter eighteen, explain or chapter seventeen, verses one through six, Babylon is revealed, right? Look at verse seventeen, chapter seventeen, verse one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, "Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of sexual immorality." And those who live on the earth became drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and the pearls holding in her hand a cup of, a cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood, blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. So there is the, the revelation of Babylon. Babylon is revealed. Then if we were to look, we don't have time to look at everything, but chapter, verse seven through 18 explain what Babylon is. And what we find is Babylon is the kingdom of the Antichrist. And the kingdom of the Antichrist rises up and God pours out His judgment upon them. So we see this judgment begin to happen in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we're we're given a warning about the danger of Babylon. What it will do and the fact judgment is coming. Then in chapter 18, verses 9 through 19... We see the wicked of the land, those who were a part of this kingdom, they weep. Right? They, they weep because Babylon is being judged. They, it has made them wealthy. It has made their lives easy. It has done much good for them. And God carrying out this judgment upon them has made them very, very sad. But then in Revelation 18 and 20, we see the righteous rejoice because Babylon is being judged because... Babylon is responsible for the death of the saints. Babylon is responsible for martyring the Christians, the disciples of Jesus during the tribulation period. And then in Revelation eighteen twenty-one through twenty-four, we see the actual destruction. A strong angel picks up a stone, tosses it in the sea, and Babylon will be overthrown. Now everything in those two chapters was written to flesh out that one sentence. Babylon was remembered before God. And she would receive the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. That's what all of that was. right? So the bowl was poured out in Revelation 16 and 19. And then 17 and 18 shows us what it looks like when that bowl is poured out from many different perspectives. And so we see that all throughout the book of Revelation. Hopefully this handout will help you because we're going to see this all the way through. Right, we're gonna go in order. We're not gonna go, we're not gonna skip the visions in between. We're gonna go from one seal to the next to Revelation 7 to 8. So this will help to keep it in clear what is going on and what the chronology and the timeline is of what's happening in the book of Revelation. Now there's one last thing I want us to see before we dive into Revelation 6 and, and look at the seals being broken. And I want you to see That everything we're going to look at in Revelation 6 and really the last of Revelation altogether is simply what Jesus has already taught. It is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would come to pass. And this is important because we live in a day when people want us to believe Jesus is kind of like a hippie guy. And he just wants us to be happy and, and love others and be nice. And that's who he was, right? He just wanted people to be happy and be nice and love others. And, and as long as we're that, as long as we love other people, and as long as we're nice, and as long as we're happy, that's, that's all Jesus wants in life from us. And, and that Jesus, well, he would never have anything to do with the sort of judgments we're going to look at. He, he would never break those seals and unleash that judgment upon the people. No, Jesus, Jesus would never be like that. But is that true? Is that an accurate vision of Jesus? Who He is and what He taught? Well, turn to Revelation 24 to see. I'm sorry, Matthew 24. Matthew 24 should be page 754. Matthew 24 and verse 1. Jesus left the temple area and was going on his way when his disciples came up to point out the temple and its buildings to him. So they're coming from the temple and they're kind of bragging. Look at how great all this stuff is. Isn't this beautiful? Look at what we've got and what we've accomplished. Jesus says in verse two, do you not see, do you, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. They're like, look at how beautiful. Our city is. Look at how beautiful our temple is and all of this stuff. And Jesus says, the day is going to come and all of this is going to be completely wiped out. Well, this leads them to do what we would do. They ask. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. In verse 3, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So when when is the end? You said all of this is going to be destroyed. It's the end of the world. When is that coming? So that leads Jesus to teach what he teaches in the rest of the chapter. But notice what Jesus teaches here. Verse 4. Jesus warns us to beware of false teachers who will arise and deceive many. And they will even claim to be Jesus. Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it, no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will mislead many people. If you look down at verse 11. See the same thing. Many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. Jesus warns against wars and rumors of wars in verse six. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See, you're not alarmed for those things must take place, but that the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Verse, the rest of verse seven, it talks about famines, plagues, and natural disasters. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But, he says in verse 8, this is only the beginning of birth pains. Then there will be persecution for the disciples of Jesus. Then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated of all nations for my name. Then as this goes on, what's going to happen is lawlessness will increase. Verse 12, because lawlessness Is increased. The love of many. Will become cold. There's going to be a great need of endurance. Because. Of persecution. And false prophets. And hardships. But the one who endures to the end. Is the one who will be saved. And the gospel. Will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The gospel of the kingdom. Shall be preached in the whole world. As a testimony to the nations. And then the end. Will come. Now, when we look at Revelation 6 and the seals being broken, we're going to see all of this lines up really well. If you look at what the seals represent and when they're broken, you're going to see it almost follows the pattern Jesus has laid out exactly of how the end is going to come. But all of this, the seals, is what Jesus says in verse 8. It's merely the beginning. At the end doesn't come suddenly. Instead, there is a progression. It starts, and then things go from bad to worse. Then you get to verse 14. Or verse 4 to 14. It shows, it lines up really well with the seals. But then verses 15 through 28 does a good job of lining up with the trumpets and the bowls. So Jesus has taught. Everything we're going to look at, He has already explained How it's going to happen. Revelation is explaining this in greater detail. Now something that's interesting. Is look at verse 21. Verse 21 says there will be great tribulation. Such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will again. And verse 9 talks about being turned over to tribulation. So Jesus seems to make a distinction between the tribulation and the great tribulation. Disciples of Jesus will be turned over to tribulation and the world will face great tribulation. Everything we're going to look at throughout the rest of Revelation has been taught by Jesus and will be brought to pass. Now, obviously, in 15 minutes, we're not covering all seven seals or six seals in the book of Revelation. So instead, what I want to do is I want us to think about how we should live. Because this is coming. Revelation 6 and beyond is coming. Matthew 24, 4 through the end of the chapter is coming. A question we ought to ask is, how then shall we live? How shall we live in light of what's coming? Well, Jesus actually tells us how we're supposed to live in light of His coming, in light of the seals being broken and the judgment coming. The first is we must understand the times. All right, look at Matthew twenty four thirty two. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. Soon as its branch has become tender, it sprout it and sprouts its leaves. You know summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Now, of course, we know Jesus used parables. He often taught ordinary things using uh, used taught heavenly things using ordinary means. This is no exception. Those who have fig trees and grow figs can look at the trees and tell when summer is near. Similarly, disciples of Jesus ought to be able to look at the world and say, <coughs> looks like time might be getting close. Not that we know the day or the hour. We'll talk about that in a second. But gee, we see signs of Of the times as they say. What are the signs of the times? Well. There will be false teachers abound. And they will deceive many. Some will even claim to be Jesus. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and plagues and natural disasters. Disciples of Jesus will be persecuted and martyred. Lawlessness will increase. Love will become cold. There will be a great need for perseverance in the face of lawlessness, persecution, and just general iniquity. And the gospel will reach the ends of the earth. Now, other than the gospel reaching the ends of the earth, these things are true now. And have been true at various times in the past in varying degrees. So what does this mean for us? It means we have to understand what Paul said. Do this, knowing the time is, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone; the day is near. Therefore, let us rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There's a sense of urgency to Paul's words. The urgency is because the day. Jesus' return, the day the the breaking of the seals, is nearer today than it was yesterday. Because I I believe, and I think Scripture teaches this, there is a specific day. God knows the day. No one else does, but God knows the day. He's not just waking up, flipping a coin like, heads it is, tails it's not. Oh, not today. He knows. There's a specific date when Jesus is going to take the scroll and start breaking the seals and start the beginning of the end. And since there is a specific date, we are always moving toward that date. Therefore, we are closer now than we were yesterday and will be closer tomorrow than we are today. Every single day draws us closer to the day. All of this begins to take place and begins to happen. And understanding the times means we know Jesus breaking the seals is closer today and it will be closer tomorrow. And knowing this leads us to a an eternally serious way of life to realize the end is coming the seals are going to be broken this stuff is going to happen and we are ever moving toward that day and we recognize it we see it and we live seriously eternally seriously in light of that secondly We trust God's Word. Jesus says in verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word will not. God's Word will not pass away. God's Word will not fail to come to pass. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 18, Not one jot nor one tittle of all God has said will fail to come to pass. Now the jot and the tittle, the smallest parts of the Hebrew alphabet. Think about the jot was about the size of a comma. The tittle was the small stroke of a pen distinguishing one letter from another. Think about the difference between a capital E and a capital F. What's the difference? That one little line at the bottom. That is essentially what a, a tittle is. Heaven and earth will pass away. But even the smallest, most seemingly inconsequential parts of God's word will not. They will come to pass. They all will be fulfilled. Our trust in God's word that all will be fulfilled is merely a reflection of our trust in God. Titus, Paul writes in Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago. The phrase God who cannot lie could very literally be translated as the unlying God. Hebrews 6 and 18 were told that it is impossible for God to lie. Since God cannot lie, His words can always be trusted. Since God has all power, His words will always come true. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Therefore, all Scripture must be as unlying and as truthful as God is. And this means, in part, every prophecy in Scripture will either has come to pass or will comes to pass. And it means anything God's Word says about how we ought to live It is the way we ought to live. The world is telling us something far different than what God's word is telling us. Culture is telling us something far different than what God's word is telling us. Who will we trust with our souls? Who will we trust with our lives? Will we trust the world which will pass away? Or will we trust God's word which will not pass away? To live faithfully in light of the coming of Christ. The breaking of the seals. We must trust God's word. And then finally we must be ready. Look at verse 36. But about the day and the hour no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the son but the father alone. For the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. At that time there will be two in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two will be grinding, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Jesus says the his return, the start of all of this, be like it was in the days of Noah, and he explains what it means. He doesn't mean in this case the iniquity and the wickedness of Noah's day. What he means instead is the ordinariness of Noah's day. God told Noah, "Build an ark, and we'll send a flood." And nobody believed him. And so he spends 120 years and he builds the ark, and he gets on at God's command. And God shuts the door, and, and the people they ignore him. They go on about their lives. So on the seventh day of Noah's being in the ark, people get up that morning and and they cook their breakfast. And they go to work. And they go on to do whatever it is people in Noah's day did in a typical day. And then suddenly the, the deep broke up and water spouted from the ground and the heavens opened up and water fell from the sky. And suddenly, suddenly they believed Noah. And they went to the ark. Noah let us in, but it was too late. Noah couldn't open the door because Noah hadn't closed the door. God closed the door. And Jesus' point is that when all of this happens, it's going to be like that. The beginning of Him breaking the seals. It's going to be a day, just like any other day. People are going to wake up in the morning. They're going to check Facebook. Facebook. And they're going to eat their breakfast. And they're going to go to work. And they're going to drop their kids off at school. They're going to be angry over politics. And they're going to grimp about this. And they're going to be driving down the road. And suddenly. The end falls down upon them. But we don't know when this is happening. right? We don't know the day or the hour. We, we don't know when this is. So the only thing we can do is to, to be ready all the time. right? We, we can't say, I'll get ready. We say, I, I, I'm going to get ready now and I'm going to live ready every single day. Now the reality is, this is probably not new. This idea, this teaching is not new to anyone in the room this morning. If I went around the room and asked, we would all probably say, yes, I believe that. I believe Jesus could come at any moment, that the start could happen at any time. But the question, the question. Isn't do I intellectually believe this? Do I live like this could happen? How many of us would affirm the suddenness of the beginning of the end, but live like we have all the time in the world? How many of us on a regular basis think deeply about the judgments that will come and the fact Jesus is returning and His word and these judgments will come To pass the reality. Jesus expects us to live differently because of what we know. In Matthew 24, 42, we're told to watch and be ready. In Matthew 24, 45 through 51, he said we're to be faithful to do his will at all times so we won't be caught living recklessly when he returns. Luke 21, 34 and 35, he says we aren't to let the cares and pleasures of this life become a snare, keeping us from being prepared for all of this. A the sad reality is I don't wake up most days and think today could be the day. In fact, if I am not teaching about the end, I probably do not think deeply about the end, hardly. At all. And I doubt I'm alone in this. But from what I can tell in God's Word, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Jesus expects the imminence of His return should change the way we live our lives. It's the point Paul was making there. The fact it's we're closer should change how we live and what we do on a day to day basis. I, I'm afraid the church, either the early church, they lived differently. You, you read the book of Acts and the letters, they they devoted their lives to living a certain way. And it's because they believed Jesus could come back at any moment. and They wanted to be found doing his will. I, I'm afraid the church in our day, us, we miss out on doing many things. Important things and focuses on many unimportant things because we don't think deeply about the end. And so we don't live as though it could happen at any moment. One of my favorite authors, a man named Francis Chan, says, Our greatest fear should not be in failing, but it's succeeding at things that ultimately don't matter. I'll close with a story. When I was in children's church, our youth, children's pastor told us a story. He said, one day Satan gathered his demons together. And he said, what can we do to hinder the church in the world? What lie can we teach them to, to hinder their effectiveness? And one said, well, let's teach them that there's no God. He said, no, this is the church. They're not going to believe there's no God. Let's tell them the Bible's wrong. He said, no, these are disciples. They're not going to believe the Bible's wrong. And another came and said, let's tell them they have plenty of time. Yes, God is real. Yes, the Bible is true. But you have plenty of time. And Satan said, yes, that's the lie. That's what we'll tell. The reality... Some of us in here today have bought this lie and we live it out in one of two ways. One of the ways we live it out is I'll get serious about Jesus later. One of the ways this lie is lived out by those who have bought into it. It's not by denying the existence of Jesus. In fact, many of those who believe this lie would affirm and argue, I believe in Jesus. The issue isn't they don't believe. The issue is the lack of seriousness in their relationship with Jesus. The lack of seriousness in their service to Jesus. They fully intend to get serious about Jesus. That He's real and He's worthy. They're going to get to it, but later. At some point in the future. But not now. And that later mindset is a sign we've bought into this life. Another characteristic shows we've bought into this lie is I'll I'll tell someone about Jesus later. Another way we live out this lie is by thinking we have time to tell others about Jesus. There's a desire to tell a specific loved one, friend, friend. Family member, a co-worker, someone we deeply care about, and we want them to repent of their sins. We want them to believe in Jesus. We want them to be saved. And we intend to do it, but today's not the right day, and tomorrow's not either, and the day after that isn't either. At some point in the future, everything is going to work out. The stars will align, and on that day, then I will. With the lack of urgency, taking them the gospel and telling them the good news. About the Savior who came is a sign we have bought the devil's lie, that we have plenty of time. We do not. The book of Revelation, as we get further and further into it, it is it is going to be challenging. Deeply challenging. And if we are not challenged to live with more urgency, then either we are hearing wrong. Or I am teaching wrong. But make no mistake, something is wrong. The book of Revelation should spur us to urgency and seriousness in every aspect of our lives. To lay aside those things which are not eternally significant and live for what matters. So the question today, where are you in your relationship with Jesus? Jesus. Are you living it out in the seriousness it demands? Are you living it out in light of the fact the end could begin at any moment? If you're not, this is the time. Today is the day. Turn to Jesus. Cry out to Him. Repent of the casual nature of your life. Repent of being lukewarm and being like Sardis and relying on the past. Repent for not being urgent. Commit yourself to it. Is there someone you know you need to tell, but you are not urgently about it? Then today's the day. Cry out to God for help. Ask for forgiveness for being casual about it, and determine you're going to live in light of the fact Jesus could come back at any moment. Let's stand.